Welcome to season two of the Pines and Perspectives podcast hosted by Wellhouse Church. This show understands that there is quite a bit of diversity amongst the body of Christ. So we operate according to the motto that certain things are fixed, like the essentials of faith, and the best beer is served on tap, while everything else is just a matter of perspective. It's cracking beer lovers. What's up, friends? How we doing? We are starting a new series on eschatology today. Well, yeah. New chapter within Ben and Randy's book about yeah, engaging. Correct. Um, that's the chapter on eschatology. The only reason I'm making that distinction is because when we're done this book with this book, we're going to do a series on, on this podcast yeah. on heaven and hell and eschatology. And I just want to. Okay, correct. Making that distinction. Yep. But we got two local brews today. Two money local brews, hopefully. Yeah, I'm actually really excited about mine, but you have the more interesting one. So, kind of. To be fair, I've never had anything from Buffalo Bayou I don't like. Yeah, me either. Um, Buffalo Bayou Brewing Company is here in Houston. Um, they have um, one blueberry thing that is not my not favorite. Your favorite, yeah, but it's not bad. Um, this is their more cowbell. Um, that's what it's called. It's a double IPA. It's 9% ABV. So drink responsibly kids. Um, and here's the description of it from Buffalo Bayou's website. The cowbell tolls for thee, available year round on draught and now sold in 16 ounce cans. Houston. Yes, we can <laughs> originally released May 5th. Of 2014. Uh, interesting, it was released on Cinco de Mayo. Um, surprisingly balanced and drinkable given its stats. The stripped down malt bill lets the noble hops go crazy with floral and grassy uh, bouquets. The tasting notes are surprisingly balanced and drinkable. Uh, oh, yeah, it's the same thing from the description. That's terrible. Um, it is 118 IBUs. Cool. So I'm excited. I like doubles. Yeah. I like doubles too. Um, mine is interesting. It's from Saloon Door in Webster. Um, it's the Kima Suprema Texas Lager Beer. <laughs> Kima Suprema. Kima is like a little area if you're not familiar. Um, on the water, it's a lot of fun. Um not too far from us um, and not too far from Webster, but it is 4.7 ABV. Um, and that's all I got for you. I, nothing else we on the can. You can find any other information uh, about it. Yeah, nothing else on the can. Uh, Saloon Door doesn't provide a whole lot of information about the, their beers on the website. So, yeah. Here we rolling are. with it. We're we rolling with it. Cheers, buddy. Cheers. solid I really like that um it's a lager um but the malt flavor is really pronounced but it's not sweet 
it's balanced very well. Um, with the hops, um, it's pretty solid. I don't know. This would be a beer that I would want to shout a whiskey with. Um, yeah. Just like a good standard. Seven. Yeah. Got it. I'm sitting firmly at seven with this. Yeah. Um, rookie score. Okay. That's that's not rookie. We decided that our average score. No, 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 no. Rookie score. So the way that I kind of envision this in my head is off of Dave Portnoy's one bite. Everybody knows the rules. Pizza reviews. And he asked people to show up on camera, like that know him or whatever, and that try and do the that join the review with him. He asked him to do it, and if they do it without a decimal point, it's a rookie score. That's just what he called it. Everything's a rookie score if it doesn't have a decimal point. Seven point two. <laughs> well, you man, so you just really improved it twenty percent, or yeah, no, no, but no, you improved it twenty percent of a of a of seventy. You gave it okay. an additional point two, yeah, which is twenty percent up to the next tier. Um, okay, mine yeah. is very good. It, but it's a double with no flair. Yeah, they're right. It is perfectly balanced to the point that it's kind of boring. Mm. Um. I think like it's very good and yeah. it accomplishes what they want. So it's like I think it's seven four, but for me, it's now boring. It's too balanced. It, like yeah. when you get a double, you you're want not the, looking for balance. No, you want the hops to punch you in the yeah, face. Yeah, yeah, and you yeah. want you want to experience like tasting elements of the hops that you would never get to because they're just not that prominent of a flavor in most beers. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it's too balanced now. It's really, like, it still has hop forwardness, um, but it's also, like, really malt balanced. Like, the malt is not, like, it's not, like, fainting in the back. It's, yeah. like, hitting you mid-palate and carrying with you, and it's just, like, it's it's kind of boring now. I see. So, Jaffil? Yeah, I hear you. That makes sense. All right. So, let's so yeah, let's talk about some eschatology. Clayton. Cullen. When you were growing up. Probably. What did you think <laughs> eschatology was? What would what did you think was gonna happen at the end? Okay. I am ashamed to say that I thought about this a lot growing up. <laughs> you did. We're gonna talk about this. Um I saw the end of the world. Um Everything on fire, red skies. Um, lots of blood and death. And Jesus would actually come riding down from heaven in a robe dipped in blood on a white horse um, and come and kill all the bad things. And... Then take us up to heaven. And what was your main inspiration for that? <laughs> Reading Revelation really literally. And then filling in some of the gaps with the things that people had told me. Well, no, because you weren't out reading Revelation. I mean... What I mean I is, what was the main like popular 
narrative. Oh, the Left Behind series. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Left Behind series. That's what it was. That's what yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. Now, I also want you mentioned something earlier, and I want you to say something about it. Mm-hmm. I don't want you to get too much into it because I'm gonna really hit it when we start our eschatology series because yeah. I think it's a foundational problem yep. um, for eschatological conversations. But you said you thought about this a lot and you were deathly afraid. Well, I never said deathly afraid. Well, what did you say exactly? I was ashamed to say that I thought about this a lot. Right. And then, but you were talking about how you had a fear element. I never said fear. You, but I, I am not going to disagree with you. I just did not say that. You made some comment, and it's okay if you like don't remember, but you made some comment, or I thought I heard you make some comment related to the idea of that the end, everything was on fire, and yeah. it was very fear-based. The yeah. tribulation element. Yeah the, yeah. the world was falling apart right in front of my eyes. There you go. Something along those lines. Yeah. That's a statement of fear, or that's what I was trying to communicate. You may not okay. have used the word fear, but... Yeah, yeah. This is what Ben and Rand or Ben says in the opening chapter on eschatology. In the introduction, he says, eschatology is about end things. At a popular level, most associate eschatology, most associate eschatology with end times, apocalyptic events, the Antichrist, the mark of the beast, since these are in the book of Revelation. Some understand these events like a dystopian horror movie which is more about destruction than salvation. As a result, thoughts about eschatology just generate fear and anxiety. I, Ben, recently met a Christian who was visibly shaken by her family's constant warnings about upcoming apocalyptic events. I want to ask a follow-up question to this, Clayton. Yes. When did you think the tribulation was going to happen? When? When did you think the rapture was going to happen? <laughs> I mean, I didn't know, um, but I thought it was going to be in my lifetime. There it is. Yeah. You didn't know, but you thought it was going to be in your lifetime. Um, <laughs> You didn't know, but you thought it was going to be in your lifetime. And do you know why you thought it was going to be in your lifetime? Because everyone else told me that it would. And most of them got that because in Matthew, it says somewhere, I can't remember if it's in the beginning of Matthew or at the end, but somewhere it associates Matthew and some words of Jesus associates the end times with wars, a time where there will be wars and rumors of wars. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people take that and go, oh, that means our lifetime. And it's like, well, no, it just means every lifetime. <laughs> every lifetime has wars and rumors of wars. True. Um, and so I think there were a lot of people that pushed that narrative that it would be in your lifetime. I think it was a lot of fear and anxiety-based movements. And if in full, full cynic, cynical culin here, I think it was pushed that way because they wanted to push a product. I think they wanted yeah. to sell a narrative and sell books. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what happened. 
Um, so this is what they continue to say. While the eschatological texts of the Bible do have warnings, this dear Christian's family had missed the central message about biblical eschatology. It is based in hope, not fear, because eschatology is ultimately about restoration, not destruction. Clayton, how much time when you were taught about eschatology, how much of it were you told was about the destruction? Percent-wise, rough guess. And what percent was about restoration? Dude, I don't... Like, maybe 90% of it was about destruction. Like... Yeah. Honestly, 90%. And then, like, oh, yeah, cool. Now we get this new heaven on the new earth thing. Well, and lots of times you get that because everybody wanted to float away and go be angels in heaven. Like, this immaterial, Mm -hmm. like, platonic kind of forms element. Yeah. Um, It is predominantly fear and destruction-based. And leaves behind any reconciliation of the gospel. Right. Um, And might I also mind you, you will get this coming up, but any kind of ancient understanding of our modern understandings of hell come from the ancient world's understanding of Gehenna. Gehenna is a valley right outside of Jerusalem. Like, it's a very real place. Yeah. Um, it's not until medieval theology, like Th- Thomas Aquinas and that scholastic era of theology, um, that you get some kind of understanding of, like, hell, the eternal place of torment, the lake of fire, ready to damn anyone that disobeys the church there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not until then that you get something like that. Nobody's really talking in those terms in theological conversations before then, because everybody's talking about restoration. You know, I ended up getting into a conversation with someone not too long ago. Excuse me. Uh, I say that not too long ago. Uh, It was like five or six years ago. So quite a while ago. And we're having a conversation about whether or not someone can lose their salvation, which you don't have to spend much time around here to know that I really don't care to have that conversation. I have that conversation because it's fun barroom talk and I've got a couple of degrees that help me know how to have that conversation. But, um, we're having that conversation and like the other person like gets real heated and I'm just like, you know, this is really not that big a deal. Um, and they continue to get a little bit more worked up. And I was just like, hey, man, can I ask you a question? He's like, yeah. He's like, you think someone dies? Like, when someone dies, they got one or two places, like one or two course trajectories they're headed on, right? Eternal life or eternal death. Yeah. They're like, yeah. And I'm like, so whether or not someone can lose that salvific act doesn't matter when they die. Because when they die, that's when that clause takes effect and their journey to life or death has been decided. And they're like, yeah. I'm like, okay, money. Then go tell people about the grace and message of liberation in the name of Jesus. I don't care if, like, you think that that's going to happen. But 
when people have these like fear-based, anxiety-driven faiths, mm-hmm. they have an incessant need to be right because if you're wrong, you might end up in destruction. And so it forces you to have this right and wrong mentality, which is what evolved out of medieval theology in the Catholic tradition, mm-hmm. where they say, hey, you've got to conform. It's about this image and conformity elements here. Eschatology, if you're ever having conversation about eschatology and the eschatology that you're coming to, you spend more of your time talking about death and destruction than you do about life and restoration, you've missed the damn point. You can't start talking about the last things as if the gospel no longer matters. And the gospel is not simply your ticket into the next era. The gospel is the thing that dictates the way in which God moves and interacts in the world and with humans in the world. So you can't just leave that all behind when you start talking about the end times. Like the gospel has to track with you. And so you can't just approach this as the 90% of the narrative has to be about destruction. Right. It has to be 90% about hope life, liberation, hope, res- restoration, redemption, all the recreation. Yeah. Golly, that's a beautiful eschatological metaphor mm-hmm. that we just overlook a lot of the times. Yeah. It must be predominantly about those things because that's what Jesus is predominantly about. Yeah. That's what Jesus is in pursuit of. And so we're going to go through... Ben and Randy's book here on eschatology. And the last thing that I want to remind you is that you cannot approach eschatology as the thing that's happening in the distant horizon. Eschatology can't be the thing. It can't be a thing that's removed from what you're doing here in the present. Yeah. Your eschatologies are tied together with your current behaviors. Um, If you think the Christian method, the Christian message is just your fire insurance out of, out of hell then yeah, it totally makes sense that all you would care about is escapist theology and rap in the rapture. Like you see how those things track what you think about your theology here and what you're supposed to do here as a Christian will also dictate what the end of your theology should do. If you have a holistic, coherent theology, those things should be feeding one another forward and backwards. There should be a reciprocity between them. If there's not, then you have something that's literally broken. It's something that's in disconnect. And so your your eschatology cannot be removed from your present experience of faith and theology. Right. Um, those things must be working together towards a goal. Um and so I think that's the foundation that I want you working from as we enter these these next, you know, finishing up engaging theology with them and then starting our own eschatology series. I want you to understand that 
predominantly when we're having a conversation about eschatology, it must first and foremost be about restoration and redemption and life. And of the remaining 10%, those can't be the driving factors. They, like Your eschatology cannot be anxiety and fear-driven. And then lastly, if your theology and eschatology are not anxiety and fear-driven, then that gives you the full ability to embrace everything about eschatology and what it means to have eternal life in Jesus and live that out now here in present reality for those around you. Thanks for listening to the Pints and Perspectives podcast hosted by Wellhouse Church. Be sure to give us a rating and a review if you enjoyed the episode. It's free and it helps us immensely. Also, feel free to check out our other podcasts.